Let me encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation. Chapter 2 is where we'll be focused tonight. Revelation 2, the first seven verses. Last week we were talking about what it means to experience God as a church. And by way of review, I want to um, take a different tack and try to pull the threads together of what we talked about last week into what I believe the Lord wants us to consider tonight. Uh, when Gail and I went to California, we went as church planters. They had a different name for it back then uh, with the Home Mission Board. They have a different name for that now. And um, North American Mission Board. And, and we were involved in helping to rebuild an existing church, the First Baptist Church of Beverly Hills, which at that time, when we first went, had about 75 people on Sunday morning. And we were working with a veteran missionary who became truly a father in the Lord to me. He's since now with the Lord. And I just learned a great deal from him. And, and we, were, we were starting new churches, and there were some nagging questions that began to form in my mind. I mentioned last week that it was some 12 years into my walk as a believer before I began to give serious thought to the question, what is church? What is church? What is church supposed to be? Uh, what, what is it by definition? And I had not really thought of that until we began starting churches. And, you know, it helps to know what a church is if you're going to start one, right? That makes sense. And so I began asking that question. I carried that question with me from California back to the first church that I pastored in Mississippi. And I really had that question in the background going on in my mind, even while I was pastoring. And, um, and as I thought about that, uh, I stumbled into uh, the subject, I don't know what you want to call it, the, the study of revival. Because I began to see pretty quickly that, that church, when it's in its truest form, is the body of Christ. And he is the head. We talked about this last week. And that he places every member, every one of his children, in the body exactly where he wants you to be. It's no accident that you're here tonight in this church. Uh, we saw last week a passage from 1 Corinthians where it says literally he places the members in the body just the way he wants them. And as a consequence of that, it means that you have gifts that other people don't have. You have a perspective that other people don't have. You see things that other people don't see. And the church needs you because of that. Unfortunately, too much of the time, if we're not listening, paying attention, our reaction becomes, well, I'm the only one that gets it. And so because I'm the only one that gets it, I'm going to go somewhere where other people get it the way I get it. And we may abandon the church. And that happens all over the country every week. The church, however, as the body of Christ, is intended to be an expression of his life. Everywhere we go, not just on Sunday morning, but when we go to school, when we're at work, when we're at home, wherever we are, we are to be expression of his life. And so the life of the church is not found in you or me. The life of the church is Jesus Christ. It's his life we are called to express. He's not called us to, to be like him. He's called us to allow him to live his life through us. More than imitation, he wants to transform us fully into his likeness and live his life through us. Uh, Jesus taught us in John 15, for example, 
that, um, that if we abide in him, if the branch abides in the vine, that's the only way the branch can bear fruit. So many times we put our attention on, on the fruit. Uh, how many people are being saved? How many people are responding at the altar? And I'm, you know, preachers think this way. Uh, how much giving is there? We look at numbers, we look at the fruit. But, but Jesus said, here's the real key. He said the responsibility of the branch is to do one thing. What is that? To abide in the vine. And we should give far more attention to the abiding than the fruit bearing. The fruit bearing is what the vine does through the branch and only the vine can do through the branch when the branch abides in him. So we really need to give attention to the presence of God. And, and the reason I stumbled into this uh, thinking about revival was because the definition of revival that I came to embrace was that revival is simply what happens to a church when the people of God experience the presence of God. And the more that he manifests his presence to the church, the more that you can understand the phenomena and the way people react and what people do, because they're simply encountering the presence of God. Uh, we've studied this before, we've talked about this, but when, when God manifests his presence, for example, in the scripture, nobody seems to be able to stay on their feet. They go down on their faces before the Lord. When he manifests his presence in Scripture, nobody seems to be able to hold in or try to hide their sin. Their first response is an immediate, overwhelming sense of their sin, and they've got to get rid of it. They've got to confess it. We see that in Isaiah. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. He encounters the presence of God. He's got to confess his sin. We see it in the ministry of John the Baptist, where obviously the Holy Spirit was present in his ministry, and people were saying, what shall we do? What shall we do? What shall we do? When he preached a message of repentance. And so the presence of God, everything in the church rises and falls in the presence of God. Right now, and we mentioned this last week, this is still by way of review, there is, there is very much a focus among Southern Baptist churches, and not just Southern Baptist, but there's a focus on what's called church revitalization. And there are all these different programs and approaches to revitalizing churches. Everything from... Uh, you know, buying something off the shelf and implementing that in your church all the way to a larger church, basically assimilating a smaller church and putting some members and dollars into it and trying to get it going back up again as an organization. I want to suggest to you tonight that revitalization is a poor substitute for what we really need. That what you and I need the most is the presence of God. Everything rises and falls in the presence of God. And so what we talked about last week is what the church is supposed to be supposed to be a collection of people who have come into a relationship with Jesus Christ by faith. As we trust him, we begin to experience him in our life. His Holy Spirit lives in each of us individually, but he also unites us as individual Christians into one body. He is the head, and because he's the head, he's in charge. He's to be Lord, and everything we do as a church is to be in response to his lead, in response to his governance of our lives. And what we want is an ideal scenario is that Christ as head would be able to speak to any individual in the body of the Christ anytime he wants, and we would be sensitive to respond to what he is saying and to be obedient to what he's saying. And that's when things really get interesting in a church, is when every individual begins to respond to the head, and we begin to carry out our individual assignments in the body. And then it becomes a thing of beauty, a thing of wonder, as he is enthroned and we respond to him. Well, I want to, um, 
to, to, to share this tonight around this question. I was thinking about it before I came up here. How do I want to organize this? I, let, me, let me pose it this way as a question. What is the thing, <clears throat> what is the single thing that the Lord is most looking for, watching for, from us as a church? Just think about that. If you were to take everything we do off the table and put one thing back on the table, what would be the one thing that he would be looking for from you and me? To help us understand that tonight, I I called your attention to Revelation chapter 2. And it's the first of a series of seven letters written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by the Apostle John to seven churches in the province of Asia in the Roman Empire. The very first church he addresses is a church at Ephesus. Ephesus was a church founded by the Apostle Paul himself. He stayed there for three years preaching and teaching. And so much response occurred that the Bible tells us that everyone in Asia heard the word of the Lord because of that ministry. Um, in, that, in that province of Asia where Ephesus was, there were approximately 300,000 people. And if you can imagine in an era without phones, email, internet, Facebook, or any of that, 300,000 people hearing the gospel and, and being able to say that we evangelized Asia is really remarkable. But that's exactly what happened. And, and he performed miracles there. He cast out demons there. And, and now this letter is being written years later by the Apostle John under the leadership of Jesus to the church in Ephesus. And so it begins in this way, verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now the first question I have is who, who is the angel? Do churches have angels? It's going to surprise you. Now you can argue with me, I just think you'll be wrong. But, it, but, but churches do have an angel, but it's not who you expect. Um, who's the angel? If you go back to chapter 1, uh, verses 12 to 20, John has an encounter with Jesus Christ in all of his resurrection glory. And in this encounter, he hears a voice. And the voice speaks to him, and it's, it's, a, it's a powerful, powerful thing. Let's see, verse 12. I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, his, as white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Now listen. He had in his hand, right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. His countenance was like the sun, shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as, as if dead. Now, now, remember what happens when God manifests his presence? It's happening to John. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. 
Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. Then he explains the symbolism. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw on my right hand. Where are the stars? In his right hand. The mystery of the stars in the right hand and the seven golden lampstands. Here it is. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. I've wrestled with this um, for some time trying to understand who are, who are the angels of these churches. And he, he writes a letter to an angel. Now that would seem really odd. We've not seen anything like that in Scripture where someone was told to write a letter and send it to an angel. I don't know where the address is. I don't know how I would send that letter. Um, and so who are these angels, the seven stars, who are in the right hand of the Lord Jesus? Well, the word that's used there for angel is a Greek word, angelos. And angelos can mean an angel, and it's actually transliterated as the word angel. But the core meaning of the word means messenger, someone sent with a message. And certainly angels are always sent with a message. But in this case, I'm going to argue that the angel that's described are the pastors. Now, I know you didn't know tonight that you were going to be addressed by an angel. <laughs> but here you go. And you say, well, pastor, how, how, do you, how do you support that? Nowhere in Scripture are angels ever described as being held in the hand of Jesus Christ. Uh, if you take John and he wrote Revelation, what else did John write? 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and he wrote the Gospel of John. That's right. And in the Gospel of John, he does describe something held in the hand of God. You want to guess what it is? What is held in the hand of God in the Gospel of John? In John chapter 10, verse 27, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And then he says, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. So who's in his hand in John 10? Well, any person that hears him and follows him. The person is a saint. And I would say that the shepherds ought to be included in that mix. And so you've got the shepherds and the saints, the saints and the shepherds all in the right hand or the hand of God. And so I would suggest to you very strongly that the angel of each of these churches is a pastor. And what you're seeing described is how ultimately what a pastor says and what a pastor preaches and teaches, that his ultimate goal ought to be to not nearly reflect what he is thinking, but to reflect what's on the heart of Jesus Christ, that when he has something to say to his church, that that man, that individual, is wanting to speak and be faithful to what it is that Jesus wants to say to the church. You can teach the Bible and not necessarily be in that gear. You can be a Bible teacher. You can teach Scripture. And we need to teach Scripture. But when it comes to that moment where he wants to speak to his church, he speaks through his prophets, his shepherds. And, um, and in this particular case, I believe that letter is going to them. The lampstands represent the churches. And in this case, those seven lampstands are uh, in the presence of Jesus Christ. And so at this moment, they have not lost the presence of God. And he is walking among them. He is attentive to them. He sees them. He knows them. He's evaluating them. Because of these seven churches, five of them are told to repent. 
there's a problem with each one of the five of the seven churches. Two of them get nothing but commendation. But five of the seven have something very serious that needs to be addressed. Ephesus is one of those churches. Now, look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 2, as we keep reading. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Pretty good list. I mean, they've done some stuff. They have identified, exposed false apostles. They are laboring in his name. Uh, They have endured much for his sake. They don't tolerate evil. And so in that sense, we would say they they were an orthodox church. They were holding forth the faith. They were doctrinally correct and vigilant about their doctrine. But something was wrong. Look at verse 4, the very next verse. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. What is it that he wants most from the church? Doesn't say they lost their first love. The wording here is, is that they, on purpose, they abandoned it. This just wasn't an unconscious act. They they consciously somewhere made a decision, a very bad decision, between either being faithful and devoted to him in love, but they never stopped working for Christ. But somewhere along the line, they stopped being devoted to him, to him personally. And so they forgot the greatest commandment of all. Look at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. In spite of everything that they were doing, a single sin was about to derail the entire church. One sin, one one fault, one wrong was about to derail the whole thing. All those other things were good. All those are things that you would want to see happening. But something was missing. What does this say about how important it is that you and I are in a love relationship with him? That you and I move through our days, move through our weeks, and whatever we're doing at church, approach what we do at church with a heart that is full of love for Jesus. That what we do comes out of that motivation. We talked Thursday morning in our our men's Bible study about the importance of Jesus being Lord in our lives. But one of the fatal flaws we can make in making Jesus Lord is we can try to do everything he wants us to do, but without the right motivation. He wants our heart engaged. Uh, One of the most chilling verses to me that I read years ago, Mark 7, was when Jesus told a group of Pharisees who were doctrinally correct, he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so your heart is precious to him. Your affection, your devotion is precious to him. And if you can't do anything else, you are absolutely just worn out. You're tired. You're distracted. You've messed up, whatever it is. You know what he wants most for you to do in that moment? Not to get up and try harder. In that moment, he simply wants you to return to him. That's repentance. Repent is to turn to him. And where do you start? Start with your love. 
your love relationship. Start there. Anywhere else you and I begin to repair what we realize is a broken situation, anywhere else we would begin would be the wrong place. He wants us to start with our heart. How's your heart? How's your heart? Orthodoxy is worthless without a right heart. So to repent is to return to him. Um, And so when I come on Sunday morning, what should, be I, what should I be coming to? Why am I coming? What, what am I coming for? Because I have to and it's Sunday? Or am I coming to be with his people? Sure. But to worship him. This morning, 44 people got up in Egypt to go to church on Palm Sunday who didn't come home from church. Two different churches in Egypt were bombed today. At least 44 people have been killed, have died so far. I promise you, somebody in Wynn, Arkansas got up this morning, turned off the alarm and said, I don't think I'm gonna go today. Boom, rolled over, went back to sleep. If I think of church as just something I have to do, that's perfectly all right. But if in my heart there's this passion for him, all things, Jesus, all things about him, with all my heart, all my mind, all my soul, all my strength, it reorders everything. The motivation changes. Everything shifts. When churches fulfill his purpose, we experience his pleasure, his presence, his power, his provision, anything else you can think of with the letter P. I mean, we experience all those things. When, when our heart is devoted to him, but, but, but when our heart is not, when he is not our first love, he's threatening this church with judgment. I'm going to take your lampstand away. We think of him removing his presence from us, but what he's describing, he says, I'm going to take you out of my presence. And, and so how serious is this matter where my heart is? It's incredibly serious. He, he, and, it's, it, and it's the most wonderful and easiest thing to give him is your passion and your heart to love him. So to repent is to return to him. Uh, this becomes visible when we do what he calls the first works. He says repent and do the first works. The first works would be those things that grow out of that love relationship with him. It'll be, it'll be much like the process we described when we studied experiencing God together. And, and let me just share with you three purposes of the church. There, there are more we could probably talk about, but let me just give you real three basic ones that I believe apply to every single church. Every single church. Purpose number one. This is an expression of our love for him. Purpose number one, to glorify God to glorify God, to bring attention to him, honor to him, um, worship to him, to, to ensure that he gets the praise, he gets the credit, to, to, to move all the eyes that I can onto him, all the hearts that I can to focus on him, to glorify him. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians, 
Remember, these are the same people that got this letter. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians, Ephesians 3, verse 20, he said, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Glory in the church. Glory in the church. When we come together, do we give him glory? Do we glorify him? Some churches focus on what they believe. Some focus on doing good deeds. Churches have different uh, points of focus. But what he desires most from us is that we live our lives in such a way that we bring glory to him. And just doing what I think I can do, I'll say, well, that is something I can do. We'll go on and do that and just having project after project and effort after effort. But without his, his sense of guidance and his direction, we're going to miss something. How do we glorify the Lord? I believe we glorify the Lord when we love him. First of all, we've established that. We glorify the Lord when we love him. If I am complaining, if I am miserable, if I am um, just, just, you know, a grouch, People see me, and that is not reflecting my passion for God, right? And how, how many of us have ever complained and grumbled? Well, I have. <laughs> I've been reading this week in Exodus 17, 18. You know, right after the Red Sea, the Red Sea parted, the people come through. Immediately, they complain about this and this and this and this. They're complaining. That doesn't glorify God. So it glorifies God when we love him. It glorifies God when we serve him. But not just by doing what we think is best, but by discovering what he wants to do. His ways are not our ways. And so discovering what he wants to do, and when he reveals to us what he's doing, and we join him in that work, it's typically something far bigger than we can accomplish in our own strength, right? And the world then sees something remarkable taking place as we join him in a work that humanly is impossible. He gets glory in those circumstances. So our goal is to, to glorify uh, God. That's a, a purpose that expresses our love for him. If I love him, I want people to know him. I want him to get the attention. I want him to get the praise. And so that's the first work of a first love. Let me give you another one. To make disciples, purpose number two, to make disciples. Obviously, the Great Commission, this is where it's at, Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We talked about this before. What is the main verb? Hint, it's in yellow. Make disciples. That is the heart of the Great Commission, to make disciples. Going, baptizing, and teaching are auxiliary activities that support the process of making disciples. But making disciples is the main verb. That's the main activity of the Great Commission. And the, make, and the Great Commission is not given just to pastors and missionaries. It is given to the church. And so we all are called to do this. What I like about this, when he says to make disciples, he, the subject of the verb is a second-person plural, means y'all make disciples. It's something intentionally that he desires we do together make disciples. Now, a disciple's not someone who merely believes in Jesus Christ. A disciple is someone who is following Jesus Christ. 
uh, to observe all things that I've commanded you is someone who's truly engaged in understanding what the will of Jesus is, and I want to be about that. He's actively following Christ. And he says, I want you to make disciples like that, people who follow me. And, um, and the whole nature of becoming a disciple is, is to make other disciples, uh, to influence others. There's certainly a component of evangelism in there. Uh, there's a gift of evangelism. There's an office of evangelism. But then there's the assignment of evangelism, and we all have that responsibility. But let me, let me, let me help you out a little bit on this concept of evangelism. We've been talking about this verse, 1 Corinthians 1.18, uh, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message is power. Do you know what it means to evangelize someone? To evangelize someone is not to make a convert. To evangelize someone is not to make a disciple. To evangelize someone is to give them the good news. That's evangelism. Now you say, well, doesn't it include making disciples and making converts and all that. Yeah, that follows, but that's not your job at that moment. When you're doing evangelism, you are delivering the message of the cross. The, the gospel and the Holy Spirit do the rest. But my, my task is to good news eyes people. And what he has called you and me to do is to evangelize Win Arkansas, to evangelize Cross County, that as churches, even collectively, we would evangelize the Delta. And he is, he is serious about this, y'all. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl gets a chance to hear the gospel. Go and preach a gospel to every creature, Mark 16, 15. He means that. And so if we're not planning to do that, we truly are planning some kind of disobedience because that's his heart. That's his desire. And when we understand the good news as being good news, um, it becomes part of our, the fabric of our life. Last purpose, and then I'm going to close. Purpose number three. Um, it flows out of the first love is a desire to bless our community. And say, Pastor, I didn't see that one coming. It's there. To bless our community. When he is present and he has our full attention, he can do with us whatever he wants, we're not only going to have a desire to glorify him, to make disciples, but our desire is going to be to bless our community. In Matthew 5, 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. What does salt do? In the ancient times, salt was a preservative. It just wasn't a spice. It was a preservative. It was a way of preserving meat. Uh, preserving fish, it was a preservative. Christians preserve the communities in which they live. Sin does damage. Uh, sin, we're in a broken world. And to the extent that believers live in a community, we are preserving agents spiritually to that community. I can't tell you how many times I've seen churches pick up, leave a neighborhood to go move somewhere else, and you could just watch darkness roll into that neighborhood. You don't have to drive very far to see that. Churches move, darkness rolls in. And so we're preserving agent. And then he says in verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. 
Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. When Jesus came, he came in part as light to drive out darkness. And he calls us to continue that ministry. We are light. We bring truth to conversations. We bring insight, biblical insight into conversations. We are to be light. And our works, when we do them at his bidding, at his direction, the things he wants us to do, well, that's when the world stands up and says, I see what they're doing, but I see God in that. And they glorify God as a consequence of that. Let me give you a couple other verses. Jeremiah 29, 7, when the people were going to go into captivity, Jeremiah the prophet warned them. And this is what he said. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace, you will have peace. These are people being carried off into captivity. These are the people who ruined their lives. And he says, I want you to marry. I want you to have children. I want you to establish homes. And I want you to pray for the well-being of those communities. In Proverbs 11.10, it says, when the righteous thrive, a city rejoices. Ultimately, what our desire is, is found in Matthew 16.18. He says, on this rock, I will build my church. And when he's building the church, it says, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. When he's the head, able to give the direction, anyone, anytime in the body, the body becomes healthy. And hell and its gates come down. Come down. Some years ago, um, I averaged about 45,000 miles a year in Arkansas for 10 years. And I visited a lot of churches nearly every Sunday. Uh, We were members of two different churches in Conway. Every time I joined, um, I had a visit with the pastor explaining I would never be there. I would send my money and my family, but I wouldn't be there. He said that would be better than a lot of his members, so that was fine. (laughs) And um, I remember visiting a church one time up in Harrison, Arkansas. Uh, It was a church that's no longer there. It was uh, struggling. It was a dying church. And the church sat right in the middle of a, of, a, of a little set of streets and houses, surrounded by people. Church, parking lot, church building, surrounded by streets, surrounded by people. When I went there, I couldn't find it. Uh, we didn't have GPS at that moment, and, uh, and I couldn't locate it, and so I stopped. I knew I was close. You ever, you ever been close but not there? I knew I was close, and I pulled up. Some guys were working on a car in the street. I pulled up. Next to him, I said, hey, guys, can you tell me where such and such church is? They said, we don't even think there's a church around here. And uh, I drove around the, the block, found somebody else. I asked them. They didn't know where. Finally, somebody said, yeah, there's a church over there two streets over. There's a church. I said, what kind of church? Just for a test, I thought, what kind of church is it? They said, oh, I don't know. It's just a church. They didn't know if it was a Methodist church, a Presbyterian church, a Baptist church, a Seventh-day Adventist church, a Jehovah's Witness, or Mormons. They didn't know. And, um, and so that particular church, when it closed, do you think that community missed that church? We should be in such a posture of desiring to bless our community. And that can begin tonight, that begins tomorrow when you're out in the store, wherever you are. A posture of blessing our community. That, that we would want it to be a very different story if for whatever reason Wind Baptist Church said we're going to close up today. 
we want to be missed. We want lost people to say, man, I wish when Baptist was still there. We want to bless our community. At the end of this section, John writes, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Is the Spirit speaking to you? I know He's speaking to me. And the starting point, no matter where we are in our walk with God as a church, the starting point is our first love. Our first love. How's your heart? We're going to stand and sing. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I invite you to come. Talk to one of the pastors. Say, hey, I want to know Christ as my Lord and Savior. I want to know him. I want my sins to be forgiven. But I also want that new life, that new life that he talks about. I invite you to come. You may just need someone to pray with you. We talked about a lot of pain, a lot of hurt associated with loss this morning. And you may just need someone to come and just to pray with you. The pastors and I will be down front. Let's pray.